The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film, coming from you from two different time zones. Sitting next to me, though, Steven Schleicher. Steven's not here, Mr. Wolf. Oh, Lord. Would uh, you like some red rum? <laughs> yes. Uh, across the state, Matthew Peterson. Matthew's not here, Mr. Wolf. And all the way over on the coast, Rodrigo Lopez. Come play with us, Zach. No! <laughs> you guys are scary. This week... Uh, we're not talking about a new film. We're talking about an old one. 1980, Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. based on the Stephen King novel, The Shining. It is I think The you Shining. you use your air quotes when you say based, based on. Okay. Yeah. Well, that we'll get to that. Uh, yeah, so last week, Stephen and I watched the new D, uh, Guillermo del Toro film, Crimson Peak. And uh, in that episode, Stephen, you kind of alluded to some similarities. Yeah, I had mentioned that, you know, especially the house uh, in Crimson Peak is a real feature of the movie and it plays an integral part in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I had said last week that uh, The Shining, the hotel also plays a huge role in the tale itself. And so I had suggested that you take a look at it. Right. So this week we are. So uh, I sat down uh, this weekend and uh, brought up the old Shining and decided to be scared for about two hours. Uh, so I've obviously it's my first time I've ever watched it. What, th- ever? Three, yeah, ever, 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 ever. I've owned it for like two years, but I never got myself to actually watch it. Well, and the good thing is, right now, or is it still going on? I, I don't no, know. I don't but think so. uh, last week it was five dollars on the iTunes right. store. So, and that was about that two years ago. Mm-hmm. That's why I bought it. But then I never Probably got myself to watch it. Yeah, it was yeah. because of Halloween. Uh, 1980, though. Stephen, did you watch The Shining in theaters? <laughs> no, I was 10. Oh, okay. You couldn't go see movies <laughs> like this. I think I saw, the. I think the first time that I saw The Shining, it was an edited television version of it, probably in yeah. like 84, 85, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, WTBS had a very, very badly butchered cut of yeah, it. Yeah, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been cable because we had over the airwaves, so it would have been like... Uh, channel 41 or channel five or something it, it was like during a prime time thing so it was edited for oh, television okay. it was still i think it was a two-night event or something one of those stupid things that they did back in the day but uh yeah um yeah it was kind of disturbing back then is that when you by the same time you watched it matthew oh no um i wouldn't watch it because wtbs had a badly dubbed uh, and, and butchered version of it and i saw about 10 minutes of it and it scared the bejesus out of me and when I was, you know, this would have been probably about the same time, 12 or 13, I didn't necessarily like to be scared because I lived alone in a basement. Um, so I didn't watch it, I think, and sit down and intend to watch it all the way through until probably in college. Mm. When was the first time you partook of The Shining, Rodrigo? Uh, it wasn't that long ago. It was probably maybe five years ago at most. Mm, um, mm. It's just one of those movies that... You know, everybody always talked about, but I never got around to watching. Um, some of my professors talked about it, but I just, you know, never watched it. 
Uh, and then I sat down to watch it, and I was like, oh, I remember parts of this from class. <laughs> I remember them telling me what this meant. I remember yeah. reading the Mad Magazine adaptation of it before I saw the movie. <laughs> I remember seeing Groundskeeper Willie. Yep, I, yes, I remember the Simpsons uh, parody of this. Yes. Yeah, the Shinning. The Shinning. Yeah, I, I'm going to bet more people, and this is the weird thing about The Simpsons, is that it pays homage and makes references to so many yeah. classical things that I'm going to bet most people don't get half the jokes in The Simpsons, or especially Simpsons from 15 years ago, uh, well, because them, it was playing on pop culture stuff that uh, yeah. people haven't familiarized themselves with. It's like the Family Guy episode that is a uh, a thing about misery. Misery is one of the Stephen King movies I've never seen. You still see it and you go, uh, contextually, I know what this, this kind of makes sense. Yeah. What year would they have done the shinning? Uh, probably, I want to say the probably 96. Let me see. It was a Treehouse of horror. Yeah. yeah. It was, it's in the first Treehouse of horror. I'm pretty sure. Is it? I think yeah. so. Let's well, see. Treehouse of horror five. Oh, the okay, thing is, they couldn't use The Shining they, because uh-huh. they were afraid they right. were getting sued. So uh, Bart <laughs> has The Shining, and as soon as he sees it, groundskeeper Willie's like, "Ah, don't say that. You want to get it sued?" That's pronounced Shining. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, got the Shining. Yeah, Treehouse of Horror Five premiered October thirtieth, nineteen ninety four. So I was only a year yeah, off. Yeah, so that's a that's a ways back. So yeah, wow. Uh, I but, think it may have been that that convinced us to actually watch the movie. Hmm. Because I think I watched it with Carl. But anyway. Uh, Stephen, you 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 know this is based on the Stephen King novel. Have you actually read I the think novel? Matthew probably has. I have not. Yeah, I I have read The Shining. The Shining as a novel is interesting because it's not. Well, you know how this movie is basically kind of focused on Danny as the POV character, right? Yeah. The novel sure. the novel really isn't. The novel is it. You know, it's a Stephen King novel, and when Stephen King writes novels, Stephen King starts the novel with what he calls the I guy. In the I do this. Hi, do I'm Stephen King. I'm a drunk alcoholic when I'm writing this book. So sure. I locked myself up in a hotel in Denver <laughs> and uh, wrote The Shining. And oh, wait, I'm going to change this guy's name to uh, Jack. To, uh, to, to Jack. Torrance. Yeah, yeah. Torrance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's a ticket. Yeah, the novel is a lot more about Jack. And there's a lot more. Uh, if you've seen the adaptation from the 90s starring the kid from Wings, it's a lot more faithful to the novel. And I feel like to its own detriment. So, yeah, it's one of the ones where – you know how I complain about The Mist and how they changed everything and they wrecked it? This is one where they took everything and they changed a lot of things about Stephen's novel and actually made it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of the big differences include the uh, topiary animals that are running around. They got rid of that. They inserted the hedge mm-hmm. maze okay. uh, part. They made um, – you know, a lot of people are like, oh, no, the book is all about the, the haunted uh, hotel. And it's really the movie's more about the haunted hotel. The book yeah. is more about the psychological impact of somebody who can't deal with uh, authority, who is yeah. a recovering alcoholic and just spirals downward once he's given complete mm-hmm. freedom. And that's part of the thing that you, that you see in the movie is you never feel like Jack Torrance was ever really all that together in the film. At least I don't. Whereas in the book, it's Jack trying to put his life together and slowly having things happen that keep that from happening. Hmm. But then again, part of that is also Nicholson. Well, yeah, Jack Nicholson in this film made me realize I would hate to be Jack Nicholson's, uh, uh, you know, offspring because he has some terrifying eyebrows. Just the whole <laughs> film is just eyebrows of terror. 
Eyebrows of Terror. I think that was uh, Treehouse of Horror number 11, <laughs> Eyebrows of Terror. Uh, you know, should we even try to summarize the plot of The Shining really quick, just so anyone that hasn't watched and wants to have the whole thing spoiled really quick? Sure. Uh, ha- I mean, haunted yeah. haunted uh, Hotel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Jack's family goes there to spend the winter mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. be the caretakers. He brings right. his son, his wife, and himself. The son has uh, The Shining, the ability to tap into um, ESP or the paranormal or whatever you want uh, to call it. And I just want to say, before watching this, I just assumed The Shining was the name of the hotel. Oh, what, okay. I, was, I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, it's oh, the okay. Shining it's Time Hotel the Station. It's the, the thing yeah, with the minds. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, and a little uh, Ringo Starr comes out. Hello. Welcome <laughs> to <laughs> The Shining Time Station. Just, and then just George like, Carlin just comes like, in uh, and throws an F-bomb. And, yeah. Just like I assumed that Flowers in the Attic was about an upstairs uh, garden on the roof. (laughs) 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 So uh, they're the only ones there Mm -hmm. because it's too expensive for the upkeep. And once the winter uh, sets in, the roads become impassable. And uh, while they're there, uh, Danny, the young boy, Mm -hmm. uh, starts to experience a lot of paranormal things about uh, murders that happened in the past. And Jack also experiences uh, many of those things. One of them approaches it from more of a... Uh, positive light and the other one uh, does not and it uh, consumes him uh yeah and there's a lot of wackadoo goo do yes there's there the is. whole film that makes you question all reality mm-hmm. uh, so let me ask everybody this everyone okay. understands that um uh jack's character also has the shining right uh yes i guess well that's the I mean, so they, the, oh, the Scatman Crothers. Yeah, Scatman Crothers yeah. talks about in the film that some people realize they have it and some people don't. I believe right. that's what he And he also says Danny, that it's, right? it's uh, hereditary, right? It gets passed on from generation to generation. Oh, I missed that. He says his mother had it and he and his mother communicated back and right. forth. And that's what, you know, how their relationship was. It's clear that Shelley Duvall's character does not have The Shining because she is not tapping into any of the paranormal, but Jack is. Well, so she by, does. by kind of extension of that, Jack has The Shining, Danny has The Shining, Shelley does not. But you have to assume she has it. Otherwise, you have to make some really weird She doesn't see any ghosts. Well, she does. Uh, she at sees, the very end. Yeah, sees, that's, where, that's where the whole thing comes up about... Uh, you know, Jack's locked in the freezer, and how does he get out? Well, not, and, not even and, that, but she sees the uh, weird masked man stuff. with the tux uh, <laughs> person, which that I, at that point of the film, when she's running through the right. hallway, she sees a person in a weird uh, but animal it's at mask. That, it's and a, that, at that point, I threw my hands up in the air and said, just go with it. Yes. None of it makes sense. And there is there's a lot of questions about that post uh, the movie after yeah. its release, and a lot of people are like, well, at some point, you just have to say, well, I guess it is a haunted mansion, and that's mm-hmm. what happens in the haunted mansion. So... Well, it's it, at that point, it's kind of almost impressionistic. It's like the last half of Barton Fink, where you can't trust your own eyes because what they're showing you is not meant to be narratively indicative of what's actually happening. It's supposed to make us think that we're all crazy, too. And mm-hmm. I think that to some degree, when you get to the point that everything is starting to unravel, Kubrick being Kubrick and having tortured these poor actors and probably tortured his, his scriptwriter and the people making the movie – really wants to torture us as an oh, audience yeah, yeah. and force us to feel the disorientation and the wackadoodliness to where maybe we all have the shinning as well. Maybe. It's real fascinating. I mean, if you want to look at it from the director, the directing side, I mean, take after take after take after take. I mean, the scene in the kitchen between Danny and Scatman Crothers, 
uh, was 88 takes. And if you talk to um, uh, the uh, camera director of photography, uh, the guy that invented the Steadicam, Mm -hmm. uh, Garrett Brown, he sits there and he's talking about, yeah, you know, about the 10th or 11th take, you know you've got it. But Kubrick just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing so that people would super overreact and super, um, in a sense, go insane Mm -hmm. in their character. And so when you see Jack being crazy or when you see Shelley Duvall being crazy, it's because they're they're so out of their mind from the direction that that Kubrick is giving. And, and, uh, you know, Kubrick was especially hard on uh, Duvall um, because I don't know why, I guess because he was expecting her to be more crazy and crazy and crazy, you know, have her start to lose her uh, mental abilities and and freak out over everything that he was especially hard on her. And I think it shows in the performance. Mm. So I I think that part of that is contextual as well. I mean, the implication is that Wendy has been, in at least a borderline abusive relationship. Oh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. And I think that if I were to put myself in a Kubrick mind and try to think, why would you torture this poor woman? The only thing that I can think of other than evil is to try and have her give a performance that indicates that she has been cowed, that she has been constantly basically overshadowed by this man mm-hmm. to the point where he wanted her to seem even more beaten down right. and abused and have nowhere to turn to yeah. because she's, you know, locked in a freezer with a crazy man basically yep. for a year. Mm-hmm. And that's, and you know, that's established in the very beginning where the yep. doctor's over after Danny's had a, had a, I don't know, a grand mal seizure. Uh, and, uh, She's saying, well, you know, my husband uh, dislocated uh, Danny's shoulder because you come home drunk. But, you know, that's what happens when uh, you get a little over emotional. But it's okay, Just an accident. And it's like, holy crap, lady. Rodrigo, did you ever throw your hands up and give yourself into the craziness of the film? Um, You pretty much have to. Like, I think uh, so. I'll, I'll, I'll come out and say that I have never particularly liked The Shining. And I think it's because I went into it with the kind of sci-fi covenant of mm. saying, like, weird things are going to happen, and eventually this is going to explain to me why things right, are happening. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that holds true for a lot of horror movies. You know, if you look at the, well, either Poltergeist, but the original Poltergeist, I think, does it really well, right? That's the scary part. The scary mm-hmm. part is like, oh, my God, they didn't, they weren't thorough contractors in their job. That's yeah. why there are ghosts. <laughs> this is what happens when you go with the least expensive contractor. Exactly. Oh, exactly. lowest bid is bad. Yeah, exactly. So um, <laughs> The Shining is really about worksmanship. But or not the, the poltergeist this. Yeah. But um so yeah, so you know, it's like I mean it like to a certain degree is like what Steven is saying is like, well, do you, you guys realize that uh Jack has it too? Is like, no, yes, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like things happen in the shining because interesting things should happen at all times in the movie, and then the movie just ends. Right. Like this is a big, long series of super cool, interesting, scary things for which there are multiple explanations. Somebody like randomly is like, oh, yeah, Indian burial ground. And then somebody's like, ooh, psychic things. And somebody's like, murder happened here. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and all, none of those are ever like, right. oh, yeah, it was murder. Or you know, I wonder, actually, it's aliens. You know, I wonder like if nobody. It's, I wonder if it's because they were doing rewrites like every day. 
Like right. they were constantly changing the script. You know, there's the whole thing about um, who was the who was the caretaker that hacked up its family and why is the guy's name different when they're having the conversation in the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it could be just because they were rewriting the script like 10 times a day. And sometimes you can see it within the same scene. It's like, mm-hmm. well, why did that ghost deny being the caretaker five times? And then later on, he's like, I took care of my family. It's like, he just asked you that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, what was he going to do? Throw you in ghost jail? It's possible. It's just a, such a, there's so many things to talk about this film. I mean, um, let's talk about the, the structure of the story where it's breaking up into what, nine different segments. Mm-hmm. Um, Kubrick used the same technique in 2001, right. didn't he? Yeah. Um, I found it interesting about the segments because they start out with like a narrative, like the interview, and then they start mm-hmm. going to time base, right? And they slowly start getting less and less spaced out. Like two months later, like four a month later, eight p.m. Thursday, yeah, yeah, Thursday. It's like it continually gets more segmented down. Do you think there was a reason why they did that? There's like a, 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 a an understandable reason why he did that was just the way he wanted to structure the film because it seems like everything means something right in this film i think that for one thing it does build the tension because you're you start out and you you have at the beginning when you have the segments and then it changes and it changes and it changes it gives you it makes it feel like a wider sort of tapestry a bigger sort of canvas upon which he's showing us this story. So we have a lot of backstory. We have things where all of a sudden, oh, it's two months later. Oh, it's a week later. Now it's Thursday. But I think Mm -hmm. on some level, the fact that those segments get closer together and they change a little bit actually feels like the movie is accelerating. Like you're coming over that hill and you're going, you're starting to go straight down. Yeah. Yeah. You're going straight down and the roller coaster is going to crash into the ground and you're all going to die. Oh, no, wait, there's a thing that turns. But you get that that speeding up, and it's it's so structured that it's almost unconscious when you're going through it. And then you get there, dun, 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 and then there's an axe and a thing and the thing that everybody's seen on TV. But it really works for me because on a conscious level or an unconscious level, you can feel the story advancing. You can feel the story accelerating. Mm. And – by putting those events closer together, it makes it does unravel what's going on. Because if these are things yeah. that happen once a month for mm-hmm. eight months, mm-hmm. then eh, yeah, big deal. Eh, a little bit. But, you know, this idea of it just keeps unraveling and snowballing mm-hmm. and and just gets crazier Then yeah, you would expect that. OK, in a month in, you do something weird. Two months in, you do something weird. The next week you're doing something weird again. And then suddenly you're just like, ah, something weird is happening here's, today. Here's Johnny. Mm. And tomorrow. And then the elevator opens and ah. Yeah, I just thought that because this this Kubrick also used those in like a Clockwork Orange or in uh, that other film he did, Benny. Two thousand one. No, that one I know he did, but uh, the one with all oh, the, the fancy dresses and yeah. stuff. Oh, Eyes oh, Wide Shot. No, no, no. Uh, it, it's the no, I it's, he did it's that his, one too. Yeah, it's his the failure movie, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. Does, does, does he use this technique in either? That's of those okay. Films? Nobody else did either. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Uh-huh. The, do you, have you? Do you guys know if he uses the? I don't. The I've then? seen. I don't, um, no. I've seen Eyes Wide Shut, but I don't. I don't remember if it was in there or not. I don't think. I just, so. Eyes Wide Shut does it to some degree because Eyes Wide Shut is well a more problematic movie. But yeah, it does have the breaks and the cuts, and then all of a sudden, Lily Sobieski's half naked. 
but it doesn't have as much time in it. And Eyes Wide Shut, I think, is designed to kind of alienate the audience. It's a an almost a Bertolt Brechtian picture because we don't you don't want to like those people. So I think I think it's in there. But honestly, the movie was so annoying to me, I can't tell you for certain. Mm. Um, one thing that stood out for this, comparing it to 2001, just from a technical aspect, was Kubrick's fascination with center framing everything. Yes, God, it was, it's you know, like we talk all about, over the place. It, every we talk shot about what's his face, uh, uh, Wes Anderson. Yes, Wes Anderson yeah. doing it. But here it's like, but see, there's something as you watch that, if you're wanting to see like everything is certainly center frame, which I found fascinating yeah. and it's all symmetrical, right? I mean, oh, the hedge yeah. maze is symmetrical. All these things uh-huh. are very symmetrical, but then if you start noticing there are times when things are not exactly centered, like when Jack goes up into the, uh, to 237 mm-hmm. and he walks into the bathroom, the shot is frame centered, but the curtain is slightly off center. It's a little bit farther off to the right than absolute center. And then later when, uh, Wendy starts to discover the manuscript, it's centered, but it's just a little bit off to the left or to the right, kind of indicating that there are things here that are not, that are not, you know, these, this is off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I yeah. found that very fascinating how they use that again and again and again in the piece. Right. And I don't know if that was an intentional or just one of those things where am I right on the line or am I just off to the yeah. left or right by a centimeter, but you can tell it in here and it does, I think, add that extra layer of, uh, yeah. of, and, you uh, know, subtext I to the think piece. the centering technique brings more scrutiny to everything in the frame in this film. Right. Because it mm-hmm. seems everything when you put it symmetrical in the center seems purposeful because the only way you can get that is if everything is planted just Mm -hmm. perfectly. Mm -hmm. And so then that opens the wormhole for Mm -hmm. all of like the weird subculture around the shining of Mm -hmm. the weird theories about it. Because the magic when a man plans a film like this to be shown, you have to assume (laughs) that he planned everything in the frame Mm -hmm. and then that it all has to mean something. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like, um, and when I say this, People are going to say, what's he talking about? It's like a well-used Dutch angle, except it's the opposite effect. It's so straightforward mm-hmm. that it throws you the same way like the third uh, third from the sun, the Twilight Zone episode, where the entire episode is slightly canted in a Dutch angle. Where the, For those of you who don't know what that is, it's where the camera isn't quite level to the horizon. But that whole episode is unnerving, even if you just catch it. And you don't always know why, unless, you know, like Stephen and Rodrigo and Zach and I, you had a film class that told you this. But with The Shining, it's almost the same thing using a reversed technique. Everything is so centered that it throws the mind and it makes you, I don't know, it's almost like it makes you as nervous as having everything off center and canted. What were you going to say, Rodrigo? Oh, I, I I mean, I agree with that. I think that um, centered, like like a, a canted shot throws you off and a centered shot throws you off because in movies, they usually don't center things that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, there's this film theory idea that you shouldn't center things because it builds drama and also because humans don't like naturally center things in the uh, center of their vision, mm-hmm. you know. Unless you're like directly speaking with someone, and even then, you're kind of not necessarily centered. So, yeah, the, this it does create um, kind of its 
it creates a wrongness within the language of film. Mm. You know, if if all film was shot like that, it wouldn't matter. This is just kind of like we you've seen a thousand films, a hundred thousand films, you know, like throughout your lifetime. And when you see a film that does things differently, you don't know why, but it throws you off. Mm-hmm. And The Shining, you know, and, and other movies like that, and, and why I think a lot of people are like weirded out by Wes Anderson stuff is that, you know, purposefully these filmmakers are making this decision to throw you off. Right. And as was said, it creates this real purpose to it, right? It's yeah. like, why yeah. is Jack Nicholson at the center of this frame? Should I be noticing the stuff around him? Is that moose on the wall important? <laughs> well, it also really creates, we, as you said, an uneasiness. And so when you frame something center frame, it's very boring, right? Mm-hmm. And you would think that spending a winter, seven months actually, up yeah. at a uh, at a, a lodge would be eh, maybe a little bit exciting, but in reality, it's probably super super boring. Mm-hmm. And so then, when things really start going crazy, that makes the center framing even more mm-hmm. yeah. disconcerting. Which was interesting because the only besides two thousand and one, I've only seen Wes Anderson right. really use this center right. framing technique. So in my mind, the center frame. Is this light-hearted, whimsical thing it is, it's that whimsical. an eccentric man does? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it almost works against the Shining now in hindsight, because, yeah. in hindsight, yeah. for me, because I've watched them in reverse order, is that right. uh, what is like? Is he making fun of this, or is it is like if you if you just take the music of the Grand Budapest Hotel and throw it over the Shining, does it become a comedy? Mm-hmm. Nice. And that's, but that's Have the thing. It? That's something no, I kind of want to though. That's something that you run into a lot, especially in pop culture criticism, is when the language evolves of the making of, specifically in my mind, comic books, but it's also true of TV and film. You can get to a point where you look at something made in a previous era using techniques that were either perfectly normal, legitimate techniques, or in this case, wild, wacky stuff. And you look at it and you go, well, this means something entirely different in today's context, and it makes the movie weird for me. And I I think The Shining is full of that, but it's also full of that in a really good way in that this is clearly another one of those movies that comes out of probably the tail end of that 70s auteur craziness that we ran into so well, much in the first half. And it, and it borderlines, you know um – uh, Halloween came out in 1980 as well, right? So we're also yeah. seeing this shift from, um, you know, the psychological thriller to the slasher series of films because we get to mm-hmm. see uh, Michael and Jason and Freddy yep. all start to come up at this exact same time, almost in opposition to The Shining's um, ghost story to where things actually exist and they're coming to get you in your dreams, Zach. Right. And that's Friday the 13th came out that same year, I think. Is yeah. – uh, where in the in the realm of horror movies the shining land did it was it normal to see a film like this at this time or did it kind of take a new stance on the horror genre then well i mean you you look and we've talked before about like uh, things like amityville horror mm-hmm. is also kind of the same thing a haunted house kind of thing um yeah. you have a lot of gothic horror kind of like what crimson peak was mm-hmm. uh also out around the same time from like ni- late 1960s through uh the 70s um, uh, you got your universal monsters, which had kind of died out at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Godzilla, big giant monsters. I wouldn't call those horror movies per se, but I mean, they certainly can scare you. 
Um, this one just kind of falls in that same, same range as, as Poltergeist yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. It's not, you know, it's more, it's the shadow that scares you and the thought uh-huh. of what could be in the closet that scares you, as opposed to a man with claws on his hands coming out and, and actually slashing you bub. Mm-hmm. So, right. And there, there's also, you know, if you look into the history of this film, the initial reception was, oh yeah, it was very before. cold. Yeah. People, people were like, we don't know what to make of this. So this was definitely something new and different. And it did lead to some of the different types of horror films. I would say that some of the films that follow in this, this one's footsteps, just this weekend, I was watching Christine again. Yeah, that's another And Christine, one. yeah, that's another King adaptation mm-hmm. that follows more in these footsteps than in the slasher film type footsteps. Because... It's trying to really, you know, build something entirely different. But yeah, I would I would say that this is this is like a watershed for horror movies because it does have some of the elements of previous stuff, but it's so much more character focused than most of the horror mm-hmm. previous to 1980. Well, yeah, I think Night of the Living Dead is a, is a an example of the exception to the rule, but yeah, and if you're looking at things that, um, if you're looking at this from a Stephen King uh, adaptation mm-hmm. model, I mean, Carrie yeah. was, I mean, there was Milkman, which is a, a short movie, but you had Carrie, yeah. which came out in 76. Then you right. had Salem's Lot in 79, which was a made for TV. Then The Shining came out in 80. So in the span of four years, you get three movies. After that, from 1982 through 1986, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen wow. movies in four years that are based on Stephen King novels, <laughs> uh, and that's yeah. I mean all through the eighties. In fact, I mean it's not uncommon. It's like uh, yeah. eighty four. Uh, I'm sorry, um, eighty eight is the only year that there was not a Stephen King adaptation made in the eighties. Wow. Well, so, and they were working on three others that year. I'm yeah, sure. uh, they had Pet Cemetery in '89, Tales from the Dark Side yeah. in '90, and Grave, uh, Graveyard Shift in 1990 as well. And It, yeah, the okay. TV movie. So, yeah, the TV mm-hmm. movie It probably took forever. Probably, but yeah, yeah, because you had to wait for John Boy to grow up. Exactly, it was done. Yeah, those time. kids. And then they, they, like you know, like the Seven Up films. Yeah, you had to wait for the kids to grow up. Venus Flytrap was only 12 years old. Yep. Rodrigo earlier mentioned that The Shining kind of just ends. Was that a satisfying ending for you? And not necessarily, I guess you can consider the um, the whole reveal of the staff photo at the end, but did mm-hmm. the whole murder sequence chase feel like a good ending for you? Did the film end rightly? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I would have been, that's the thing with horror movies is, the important thing is the suspense. So mm-hmm. things are getting more suspenseful. And then either the family gets away or he hacks them to pieces or Danny uses the sh- shining to blast them away or you finally find out it's aliens or whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter as much. That chase scene was great. If he had hacked them yeah. up or he freezes to death, that's fine. Um, as far as the reveal at the end, I mean, it's only satisfying because... This entire wide movie is brought to a single pinpoint. So visually, physically, cinematographically, it's very satisfying. As a story point, it's not. It's basically like that's the ending that just I just threw my hands up and I was like, come on, movie. Like, you're not going to give me. <laughs> oh, OK, so there's OK, sure. Fine. Whatever. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. That's pretty Are much you? how I felt 
at the end, I was like, okay, he froze to death. I'm like, oh, that's the thing I always see all over the internet. Right, that's right, him. Right. That's okay. Now I know where that's from now. Uh, and then they show this wide shot of a staff photo. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's him. And then I'm like, no, that's yeah. definitely him. Oh, that's definitely him. 1920 something. 1921. What, yeah. what the crap? Movie's over. Um, well, and so read into it what you will. Is he? Has he been reincarnated? And that's why he. Um, and that's why he felt like he knew everything about the hotel from the moment that he got there. Right. Was he the, I mean, uh, when Grady says, no, sir, you've always been the caretaker. Was yeah. he a caretaker in 1921 that hacked a, hacked a bunch of people at a party to mm-hmm. death? We don't know about 1921, right? Well, here, yeah. So he could have killed a bunch of people in another life back then. So I was, I mean, I'd watched the film and I was going back and through and watching a few things. And, um, the scene where he's, t- the second scene where he's talking to Grady, where there's actually mm-hmm. a party happening around right, him. Right. Um, I was, oh, I was actually watching that, the Room 237 documentary. We'll get to oh, in a second. Sure. And they showed the scene, and I wasn't really paying attention to it. I was just kind of observing the whole thing. I'm like, oh, I paused it really quick because he's wearing a red coat, just like, not exactly like the red overcoats all the staff was wearing right. in the hotel. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, I see, Mr. Kubrick, what yeah, you're yeah. doing here, everything with the with red. Your, yes. With your um, face and your glavin. Yeah. Yeah, but that that ending seems like you're like oh now it makes sense, but now you're just like kind of more confused mm-hmm. and like what mm-hmm. how and then I started doing math and like well that was 1921 if this is 1980 in the film and he's about what 30 years old and so the guy might have lived another 30 years and then he died well I guess the reincarnation Unless thing he, could happen yeah sure sure mm-hmm. could easily done it especially uh, if he, the axe yeah. and killed everyone and killed himself. Yeah, and killed himself. Right. Or was killed, hung, whatever, mm-hmm. for right. murder. So, you know, which right. makes a lot more sense when you see all the party goers show up later in the movie where, you know, there's a, you know, a, a furry person <laughs> doing something with a guy in a bed yeah. and the other well-dressed person uh, all uh, hacked up and bloodied walking down the hallway. I mean, that ties a lot more into mm-hmm. to that theory. But it wasn't um, in the book, Matthew, did they find the body? At the end. Oh, God, I can't remember. I've seen the movie I since thought at I one read point, the book now. I thought at one point uh, it was discussed somewhere that when they went back up there, they couldn't find the body. So it was either assumed that he didn't freeze to death or that the house had absorbed him mm. into yeah, itself. Yeah, that does, that does sound right. Although, no, at the end of The Shining, uh, the book, uh, Jack saves uh, Wendy and Danny because the boiler's been giving them trouble. And so he blows up the boiler. The bo- right. boiler blows and, up and blows up the hotel. And then... Yeah, but I yeah. can't remember. Maybe they didn't find the body after that either, but interesting. Yeah, they didn't they didn't find a body because his father was killed. Yeah. But he he like guides the family out of the hotel, I think. Mm. Yeah, I don't interesting. Remember. So, um, you know, we've talked about some of these weird theories people have about the film. There was an entire documentary made about <laughs> it called Room 237, which um Wackadoo, Wackadoo, Wackadoo. It is it is based on nine fans' theories about what The Shining is actually about. Right. right. Um, none of them about the moon landing, which I thought was the most <laughs> pervasive theory about The Shining, which it was Stanley Kubrick's Stanley Kubrick covering up cover card saying, I did the moon landing. This is why, this is me telling you all. Yeah. How in the hell anyone got that from The Shining? is uh, well, a, a, a pound of mushrooms to me. If you just, wa- if you no just watch the first 10 minutes of the movie or the first 20 minutes of the documentary where it's like, oh, no, The Shining is all about uh, the white man yeah. uh, killing Native Americans. Yeah. 
And it's just but like, that's the okay. Thing. Part of that is because of the ambiguity of the ending, and part of that is the the ambiguity in the supernatural elements of the film. There's a lot to process here. And Kubrick, and I think characteristically, doesn't give us any touchstones to work with. So it's all on you mm-hmm. to put this together in your head. And as we've seen, thanks to the advent of the internet, everyone in the entire world is a nut bar in one way or the other. <laughs> and it's fascinating to see what people bring to this movie. And, you know, it, it's about aliens and me and my cousin, they say, give us some chiclets. But you you really get to see how impressive an entertainment experience this is oh, when sure. you see all the things that people are able to impress onto it. Yeah, the I mean, right from the beginning, you said it, Stephen. The first theory that guy guy throws out is the the Shining is about yeah. the massacre of the Native Americans. Right. Well, at at one point, she's wearing a sweater that has a teepee on it. Oh, <laughs> well, the in like they're like, oh, well. Have you guys, have you, Matthew? Have you seen two thirty seven? Have you seen the documentary? I've seen it. I've seen about half of it. Okay. Hey, Roderick, have you seen it? it? Oh yeah. Have you seen all of it? I have. Yes. See, I couldn't watch all of it because. I was like, this is going to ruin the film for me, and I just watched it, and I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. I don't have all these crazy ideas. Um, I've watched about half of it. I want to watch it again, but I actually want to watch The Shining before I watch it. Because the guy's like, well, if you look at the scene when uh, Danny's talking to Holland, and there's this one can, and it's got the word on it that means peace treaty. And then you you don't see him again for later, and then it's when Jack is talking through the door to a ghost, um, and they're all scattered, and that's the breaking of the... I'm like, holy crap. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do it. Now I loved I love uh, Room Two Thirty Seven because that's the sort of thing that I and my pretentious—not that I wasn't pretentious, but my fellow <laughs> pretentious film majors—did when we were in college. And and afterwards, we you know every once in a while when we talk, it's like, well, did you see Jurassic World? And it's like, yeah. Like, isn't it funny how like this and this and this, and it's kind of about how like consumerism is actually saving the United States. Hmm, how so? I'll explain. You know, that's sort of <laughs> well. that's but the thing is, we're kind of joking. Right. Um, because you know, you can see a movie uh like, you know, uh, two thousand and one a space odyssey for another Kubrick example. And you can say is like, well, this is about, you know, the forward progress of man. Are we moving too fast? This is about, you know, evolution. And, you know, this is about all these things and you can line it up. Um, but a lot of the theories about the shining are very out there. They are very, um, they're fringe. Uh, they're very fringe. They're very detached from the visual materials. And once you get to that point, you can use anything to corroborate them because you're already three steps away from what you're actually seeing, mm-hmm. right? Um, my favorite part of Room 237, uh, and I believe it is in Room 237, uh, where somebody starts talking about the moon landing and about um, how Kubrick, this is Kubrick's basically confession that he covered the moon landing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and one of the things that, that person says is if you look at the um, uh, patterns on the carpet, they look mm-hmm. like Cape Canaveral, um, which is amazing because it does. They show a picture <laughs> of it and it kind of does look like Cape Canaveral, which is fantastic. But also, we know that Kubrick didn't have the hotel recarpeted. 
Well, no, this, this was an entire, this is, everything that we're seeing is a set. It's a set. Except for oh, a few a, pieces mm-hmm. outside of the, uh, what is it, Timberline Lodge, what they use for a bunch of exteriors. They built the exterior of that, uh, of that in, was England. it in England? In they England. built an, a full-size exterior shell uh-huh. mm-hmm. in England, and then the all the interior shots, which is amazing, is in a sound stage. Oh, well, that they built that whole that they built that whole hotel, (laughs) and um, and (laughs) the one of the things that Kubrick did say is, um, when people were asking about you know the design and the interior decoration of the hotel, he's like, look, there have been hotels around for a lot longer than I've ever been alive, so why not just cull from the best bits and pieces of hotels and things that I like and have that be put into the space, especially when they're talking about the rooms like 237 or the caretaker's home. And, you know, people mm-hmm. have sat down and they've said, well, wait, based on the, the layout no, of the hotel, sense. there's yeah. no there's no way that this room sure. could be here and that and those kinds of things. Sure. And so Kubrick's just like, eh, whatever, you know, just kind of mm-hmm. like that. So he could have very easily uh, come up with the pattern and like that pattern and said, yes, this will be part of my <laughs> my confession Secret to America. Which... Which, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, have you guys ever seen Wag the Dog? Yeah. No. Yeah, I think so. Wag the Dog is a, I really enjoyed Wag the Dog, partially because it's a movie about filmmakers. But um, fundamentally, I think Wag the Dog has it. In the end, basically, Wag the Dog is a movie about uh, creating fake news using, like, good film techniques right right? right. it's like they create this fake war to make this presidential candidate i believe seem more appealing Mm -hmm. um or like for a re-election and um then the character who's doing it is like okay so what do i get of it and they're like a buttload of money and they're like well what about any sort of like recognition or anything and they're like no no one can ever know you did this Um, and then he starts having a lot of trouble with that. So I think, you know, like, uh, that's fundamentally the issue is that, you know, making this movie as a confession is not obvious enough. You know, it's like for somebody who did that, for somebody who changed the course of history by making a very believable, uh, space movie mm-hmm. that then the government told you was true. Um, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to just kind of hide things in a little boy's sweater. That came right, out right, wrong. Right. <laughs> right. No, it, yeah. Well, it did and it didn't. And that that's another one of the things that's great about it is I had actually heard one of these theories before the film, uh, the theory that this is actually a movie about the Holocaust. That's mm-hmm. another one that yeah, comes up one. in 237, yeah. When they make that argument, I'm like, Okay, you 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 make a compelling argument, and I, I listen and I say, you know, you've you've clearly thought this out, but it's another example to me of you brought this to the movie, and the movie mm-hmm. matches up to it. Does that necessarily mean that the movie meant to say that? And then, of course, we get into that same argument that we've had so many times about the intent of the creator. Yeah, and the and you know it. That's the biggest problem with room 237 is everybody who is talking doesn't say, well, here's my reading of it. Everybody says, this is what Kubrick is doing here. And that is like fundamentally wrong. Mm -hmm. This is, this is clearly the creator's intent. And you know, when it, what it really comes down to, and I think what somebody said about the room 237 documentary is that it's great to watch 
Because it's just as convincing a descent into madness as the movie <laughs> that we're watching that it's trying to explain. Because it really does take a little bit of obsession. And, you know, a movie this noteworthy, a movie this beautiful, a movie this well-constructed is one of the few that can handle the, I guess, the strain of carrying this many theories. You couldn't hang that on even maybe Star Wars. I mean, you couldn't hang that just on a movie because it's popular or on a movie because it's good. You have to have a movie that is constructed in such a way as right. to be – Visually fascinating and to be narratively dense and also to be a little bit inscrutable and maybe a teensy bit pretentious. But what if Stanley Kubrick is just sitting there going, you know what? How about if I just fuck with everybody's minds and just start doing all this stuff so that when I'm long dead, people will still be talking about all these conspiracy theories that I've intentionally planted into the movie just to mess with people's heads? I don't is think – no, well, that, was, I mean, that was the thing about the 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 room two thirty seven. It was like, well, one of the guys' theories was like the, he made this because Barry uh, Barry Lyndon was a film made by a really bored man. So we wanted to be. So we talked to all these ad execs and subliminal messages. I'm like, well, I can get on board with that. There's probably some weird subliminal yeah, stuff in, in the, the Shining. So they set that up in the beginning. Like, well, if he's studying all the subliminal stuff, well, then I guess this. Yeah, sure, we could throw that in there. That he's just doing it for a joke, for a gag. Well, sure, or at least yeah, that yeah. there's something there if yeah. he actually did study all this stuff. Yeah, because I was thinking, I mean, as I'm finishing up the film again, I was like, you know what? Could you do something like this today? And I was like, wouldn't it be great if you could go be a um, a caretaker at a hotel like this for the winter? And then I was thinking, no, because if I just went by myself, I'd probably be, you know, within a week walking around naked through the hotel, <laughs> covered in my own feces, just screaming at the yeah. top of my voice, right? Or but then I was like, call it but, but – 8.02 p.m. Uh, but what if you got a bunch of your friends to come up there as well? And if you had Internet access, which I would imagine you'd have Internet mm -hmm. access, you did this very elaborate hoax where all of your friends are never seen in any of the live streams that you're doing. But you're just slowly creating this thing about how you're going insane and there's something about the hotel and something crazy. And then mm -hmm. you have your friends doing you know crazy stuff in the background. Uh what kind of fun hoax would that be? So eh, who's, who's to say Kubrick didn't go a little bit further and said, let me just do this stuff to see what, what people think or if anybody catches it. So, Well, one thing you have to remember about subliminal stimulus is that it will only make you do things that you already kind of wanted to do in the first place, much like yeah, you know what they say about mesmerism and hypnosis. <laughs> You're basically, again, bringing your, your stuff to it. So mm -hmm. I think that A – that is a fascinating theory up until the point that it crashes into that argument that you and I keep having of if there really is a conspiracy, why would they have so little control as to let us think there is a conspiracy? Clearly, if they were really a conspiracy, we wouldn't know about a conspiracy. So any conspiracy that we know about can't be a real conspiracy. Let's say conspiracy one more time till it doesn't sound like a word conspiracy. But that's just me. Let me just say one thing about the technical side of this before okay. we wrap it up. Yeah, yeah do it. Because this was all built in in a set, right? Mm -hmm. They brought in a million watts of light to put outside in those um, outside wow. of the, outside of the building. Yeah, uh, it, it, so that when they're inside the lobby, That's they're blasting yeah. a million watts of natural of light through there wow. to make it look natural. They made and their own sun. They did essentially, <laughs> and so they didn't. They had to use very little um, 
other lighting because it would just bounce off the walls and the floor and everything create something that look, looks very natural. So hot, it actually burned the set to the ground, awesome. the outdoor set to the ground, and they had to rebuild it awesome. from the, from scratch. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I was wondering <sighs> how – I was like – because they started the film spring-ish, you know, I mean, some, right. into summer, right. it's nice out, and then cut to whatever, snow everywhere. I'm like, did right. they wait – or the snow, no, or did they faked. just bring in five million tons of uh, fake snow? It is. Uh, what did they say? the The scene at the end where they're running through the the maze. That's all inside. That's all interior, and it's uh, salt. Oh. It's actual salt on the ground that they're oh. doing that. And um, and what they slid down from that. Like, that I don't remember window? what that is. That may be. I don't know if that's salt as well, but I do remember in the. One of the making ofs, they're talking about how they, they just brought in tons and tons and tons of salt wow. to look like snow. Mm. And I then think they, the sliding um, scene is actually on fiberglass. And then they had a um, some kind of a, like spray on stuff to spray the hedges. Mm-hmm. But what was happening is it was reacting to the heat of the lights. And so it was causing <laughs> some very ca- caustic fumes to uh-huh. be going through the, through the set. So, yeah, good yeah. times. Wow. This movie, I... I you know, I've only seen two Kubrick films now, but they are like masterpieces. This is insane. You should watch Eyes Wide Shut. Um, Rodrigo, does this Shining stand the test of time for you? Does it should should it still be lauded today, like it was or has been for years? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Shining is a technical achievement. It is a movie that will transfix you from beginning to end, and then. Uh, leave a shining shaped hole in your brain of what was going on, causing you to create all kinds of ridiculous fan theories. That is what the shining does. It still does it today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. The shining holds up at 100%. Where, where does this stand as a horror film for you, Matthew, like an all time horror is the shining rank up there for you. Well, I am something of a horror aficionado and there are a lot of films at the top of my list that I go, these are scary movies. Um, to tell you how powerful a horror film this is, I want you to put yourself in my shoes. Nerdtacular 2015. Beautiful summer day on a mountaintop. It's gorgeous. There's no oxygen. My brain's not working. And Casey says to me, you know, this looks just like the hotel from The Shining. And I had nightmares that night about the freaking hotel from The Shining. Based on that one offhand remark, that she made in broad daylight on a beautiful summer day with Rob around, which, you know, come on. Is the least scary thing, yes. Right. You know, Rob Rob is like, he's like sunshine on a cloudy day. But that should tell you a little bit of the, just the impact it's had on me. I put this way up there. Night of the Living Dead may be the scariest re- just sit down and watch experience I've ever had. This is definitely a top five scary movie for me. And it's scary in different ways in different places. It's not all there. There are jump scares in here. Don't get me wrong, but it's not all the same thing. This is like a a cheese wheel of scary, <laughs> where you can have you can have a little Norwegian Jarl's yeah. And if you, you eat too much cheese, gouda. yeah, yeah, you end up uh, you can have some for days and have to go. To I don't the have that room. problem, yeah. Stephen. Yeah. I don't have that problem, Stephen. But yes, it's it's various flavors, a smorgasbord, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because really everything comes back to food when you're a fat man. But yeah, it's it's very scary, and I think it's earned its reputation for being scary, and I'll probably have nightmares about it tonight. Great. Uh, Steven, is The Shining Kubrick's best film? 
Well, if I'm looking at my research correctly, it may be the first time that we've heard the word sheeple made an appearance in this movie. <laughs> wake up, sheeple! Yes, he says, wake up, sheeple, whenever he's screaming at Wendy. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, okay, let, you know, let me go and see what the origin of the word sheeple is. Uh, it says that the first time it appeared in print wasn't until the 1990s. And then uh, uh, first appeared, oh, I'm sorry, first appeared in print in 1984. And then shortwave radio host Milton Cooper used it during the late 1980s and early 90s. Yet The Shining came out in 1980. Cooper, hmm. Kubrick, Cooper, Coined Kubrick, or the 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 scriptwriter did yeah. uh, the sheeple. No, this is a this is a very disturbing movie. Um, very much like the word sheeple. Um, and I think that it's it's worth watching. I think that if you want to go down the rabbit hole and look for every little um, uh, boogie monster that wants to jump out at you, it's there. Mm-hmm. And that can be a lot of fun, too. If you're looking for something that makes you wonder why a father would hate his son so much, you can find that in this movie. If you want to see dysfunctional family dynamics of the 1980s, it's in this movie. So, yeah, there's a lot going in this movie. But you know the one thing that's not in this movie? What's that? Our good friend, Brian Ibbett. Did you know, (laughs) did you know, did you know that our good friend and host of the Coverville podcast, Uh Brian Ibbett, was one of the eight finalists to play Danny in this movie? No way. Yes. No way. Yes. For reals? For reals. Oh, I'm going to need some documentation on that. Yeah. He and I were talking about it today. And he's like, yeah, I was one of the eight finalists in this. And because the, they, when they were looking for Danny, they needed an American. They went to California. Uh, I think it was Los Angeles, Denver, New York, and one other place. And he yeah. was he was one of the eight finalists. Wow. And uh, didn't make the cut because of this uh, little shaggy-headed kid that they had. So. Huh. I will, well, it's, I hard will to, say this. it's hard. You don't usually cast many eight-year-old bald kids. He <laughs> <laughs> nice. may not have With a mustache. Like <laughs> I will say this. The only movie that Kubrick did that I think is better than this is the first half of Full Metal Jacket. And the second half is not this good. So I think that this movie as a whole beats out everything else in his filmography. Is it is it the greatest Kubrick one, do you think, better than 2001? I feel it's better than 2001 because, granted, it's been a while since I've seen 2001. There are points where 2001 dragged for me a little bit. Sure, sure. There are certainly points where AI artificial intelligence dragged for me, but I don't think he actually did that movie. Um, but no, yeah, if you, look at, if you look well, at, but, but you know, a lot of people talk about the Kubrick influence. Right. 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 Yeah. The, the first half of that movie is very Kubrick too. But yeah, if you, if you get to a point where you sit down for me, just as a, a rewatching experience, I feel like this is the best coherent entire Kubrick thing. I would actually place uh, Doctor Strangelove above 2001: A Space Odyssey, but that's also because I love Peter Sellers. So mm-hmm. I'm, I may be weird. The internet may call me a jerk. I don't care, and I don't think I've ever seen his version of Lolita unless it's the black and white one. Uh, for me, I I, uh, I loved this movie. I think I'll probably have to watch it again in the next month. Big question: What did your wife watch it? She watched about a third of it and then she decided (laughs) i'm going to bed before i don't sleep for a week (laughs) um i don't remember when she finally checked oh no it was she finally checked out it was (laughs) red rum red rum Uh, done just just completely done out of it not even gonna peek at at the screen anymore (laughs) uh that's when she stopped watching uh 
for me, I, I'm probably gonna watch it again in a in a, in a month because uh, I mean the the videography, the cinematography of this mm-hmm. film was amazing. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite moments is not even the centered thing. Well, it kind of is if you think about it. Was when he follows him swinging the axe. Oh right, through right. you get that motion mm-hmm. of the axe yes. and you slam it at yes. the door. Mm-hmm. That was. Wonderful. All, all it was cam. so good. I mean, this is again. With, yeah. You're looking at the evolution of technology in Steadicam. This is one of the first films using Steadicam. Just like mm-hmm. with Rocky, they used it for the one sequence. But this one, they're using it throughout the whole movie, and that's why Garrett Brown was was the director of photography because he was honing the Steadicam system during that mm-hmm. entire production. And this was the first time that he'd ever thought of swinging the camera uh, from the bottom instead of mm-hmm. the top, so that they could follow Danny around right. on his big wheel. Yeah, it's right. awesome. That uh, that sequence, that big wheel sequence. If they couldn't have done that, if you know, without the Steadicam, I don't think that sequence would have had right. nearly the impact that it does. Yeah, yeah. I heard they just did that one because the kid had so much energy and he was just know. riding his big wheel around. They're trying to get the energy out of him, and they just finally started following him with the camera, riding it around. I know the they had to build a special rig to follow him around. Yeah, so. yeah. The the rig setup was apparently super complicated. So, you know, they they had the one guy and they had the sound guy, and apparently they had a blowout and nearly killed everybody. It was terrible. <laughs> it was like an episode of Knight Rider. Yeah, so obviously we could talk about The Shining forever and ever, but we can't because or ever you got other things to ever listen to. And ever. Uh, so that's going to be the end of this episode of Zach on Film. Head over to MajorsBrothers.com. You can find this podcast posting page. Uh, you can give all your thoughts about The Shining. It's been out for a while. Surely you have some thoughts about The Shining or anything we've discussed in this episode. Head over there, jump into the comments, and let your thoughts be known throughout the entire world. While you're there, click on Amazon.com. Buy your I'm sure you favorites. Can get this in Blu-ray. Oh, absolutely. You can buy this on you can Blu-ray. Get the documentary 237. You can buy uh, probably 2001 on Blu-ray. Oh, sure. Uh, Doctor Strange Love, which I just remembered. Whole, I also have and I haven't watched. Buy the whole Cooper Good collection. One. Yeah, that's not going to cost you any extra when no. you use that link. A little bit. We'll come back to major spoilers <laughs> to help keep shows like this going and going yeah! and going. Um, oh, that's it for next week. I'm sorry, I didn't. I forgot to look to see what next. Oh, week was. next week we don't really know what we're doing. I'm going to be out of town, but. Uh, we'll let you know what we're doing unless Stephen wants to. Uh, type our really brand. Fast. So this weekend, or I'm sorry, the 21st is Gem and the Holograms, The Last Witch Hunter, Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension, and Rock the Casbah with Bill Murray. Paranormal Activity. Uh, and then on the 31st is our Branding Crisis and uh, the Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. So there you go, wrapping up your month of October. We'll figure out what we're going to do next. Absolutely, and we'll let you know next week a new episode of Zach on Film. podcast is copyright 2015 by major spoilers entertainment llc when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer mail checks invoices documents and everything you need to keep your business running get rates up to 89 percent off usps and ups and with the mobile app you can take care of mailing on the go make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit CarShield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at CarShield.com audio. That's CarShield.com audio.